Hi, it's me, Katie. And me, Adrienne. And you're listening to Kindled. A podcast where we dig into the science behind building relationships and environments that help kids unlock their full potential and become empowered learners. Together, we'll discover evidence-based tools and methods that will empower you to kindle the curiosity, motivation, and well-being of the young people in your life. Welcome! Hi, Katie. How's it going? So good. How are you? Good. So, how's your week going? It has been good. Some wild times at the Broadbent household. Uh, My... 10 year old has really been struggling in math and not just really struggling with math concepts, but really struggling with himself and his perception of himself as a learner. And that has been interesting, but also like really difficult to watch. And it's been like surprisingly emotionally (laughs) difficult for me as a mom to watch him struggle. Well, I just, I don't know. Like I'm getting so triggered by his struggle. Like I, feel like we have built this whole family culture and Prenda around this idea of growth mindset and that it's okay to have make mistakes. And it's just like, how have you been kind of like bathing in this, like this, um, this culture and you still have a lot of reservations about yourself as a learner and you don't want it to be, you don't want to be wrong because it makes you feel stupid. And he's actually started, he's usually such a positive kid. And he's really started using some negative language about himself. And I just, when I grew up, like I was a very negative talker about myself. And so I don't want him to feel those things. And to hear him say that is very like, I can feel like my chest getting tight and, and like, I have to take some deep breaths and I'm getting really emotionally worked up when I see this. And so. Oh man, what are some of the things that he's saying? Um, like. I can't learn anything. I'm stupid. I'm bad at math. Just like a lot of that negative talk. And I have to stop him and say, like, think about your words. Like you're teaching your brain what to think by choosing those thoughts. And we need to be careful. Like, let's use different language. Let's say things like this is hard for me and that's okay. Like giving him some growth mindset affirmations. And, but it's, it's like all of the work on it hasn't settled in yet. And I can tell that he'll have these like little breakthrough moments. And I kind of had this conversation with him yesterday. Um, The weather's like really beautiful here right now in Arizona. And we were just outside in our backyard having a little sit down chat. And he kind of opened up to me a little bit about some of his feelings. And I was able to be really transparent with him as a parent to say like, here are my hopes for you as like a person that loves you and is raising you. Like, I don't want you to get stuck in these feelings, like, because they're not helping you move past. They're not helping you progress. Right. And so we just kind of had this really good conversation and I don't think our problems are over. I think later today when I'm like, Hey, how's math? Like he's still going to be grumbly. And, you know, actually even, even after this conversation, I was cooking and I'm like, Everett, come help me do these. Like, you know, I was tripling a recipe or something. So it was like adding fractions and stuff. And that's what he's doing in math. So I invited him to come help me. And he was just, he was like, did not want to do it at all. So it's just this like, you know, fits and starts. Like I can see the understandings there. I'm, I'm, I'm aware in those moments when I'm feeling super like tense about it, that that is not maybe 
the right time to engage because we're just, I'm just going to transfer a lot of that. Yes, that's exactly what we're going to dive in today. So I'm so happy that you brought that story up and just made it real because, you know, the two of us listen and read all these things that we have all the head knowledge, but we're still human too. <laughs> so totally. I can't wait. Yes, I cannot wait to dive in to just taking a bird's eye view and trying to really look at what the goal is here. What is the goal of our role as adults in our kids' lives? Absolutely. Yeah, that's totally such a good question. I think that it's hard because life goes so fast, right? We're so distracted. There's so many things that we're paying attention to. And it's really hard to just find some time to pause and reflect on what your real goal is and what your real role is, right? And that even rhymes. So that's fantastic. I don't know why I like it when things rhyme so much. It's like something weird about my brain. But it's mnemonic. Yeah. <laughs> it helps it stick. Yeah, it does. It does. Okay. So what we'd like to do today is actually help you, our listeners, find this little bubble of time to reflect on what your real goal is. And this might be your goal as a parent, your goal as a classroom teacher, your goal as an administrator, your goal as a soccer coach, you, any, any way that you interact with young kids, anything that we're saying today, just totally take it and put it in your perspective and your situation. All right. So we're going to start this kind of reflective process. So if you are listening, you might want to go grab a piece of paper and jot your thoughts down as we do this. And I would invite you to really take the next few minutes very seriously. Um, The more you dig in here, the more transformative this whole Kindle process will be. And you are going to find such an amazing power in yourself to be consistent and steady and to really become the kind of person that all of the young people in your lives desperately need you to be. And if you don't have a piece of paper, because you might be on a treadmill, you might be for a walk, you'll pull your phone out and just open up notes. This is a really awesome exercise to really write it down and reflect. I love that. That's such a good idea. Okay. So whenever someone asks me in like a weird thing to like close my eyes, I never do it. And then, so I feel weird about everyone, like inviting everyone to close their eyes, but imagine with me, eyes open, eyes closed. Do not close your eyes if you're driving or something. (laughs) Um, Imagine that it's like 30 years into the future or 20 years in the future. And you are visiting, could be your child, could be a student of yours, could be any, any child that is important in your life. And you're visiting them and you're walking up to their house. They have their own, their own adult life, right? And you run into their neighbor and you say, hey, I'm so-and-so's mom or teacher or anything, whatever you are to them. And this neighbor says, oh, wow, nice to meet you. I'm so happy that I get to live next door to whoever the child is. And then they're going to say some things to you. And this is where you get to use your imagination. You're going to create this future, this goal, what this person is going to tell you about this child or this learner. They're going to say something like, I'm so glad that I live next door to this person because they're always so. Then you're going to fill in some adjectives. How would you want them to describe this child in their adult life? What are they like? 
So pause the video and think about that if you want to, or you can just kind of keep listening. Then they say, I can tell that your child really cares about. And then they're going to tell you what that child really cares about. And then they're going to say, I can always count on them to fill in the blank. Okay, so adjectives, what they care about, and what they can be counted on for. Those are your th three categories. And Adrian and I, while you think about that, Adrian and I are just going to answer this for ourselves. And Adrian, can you do it from the perspective of a parent and I'll do it from the perspective of an educator? Absolutely. Okay. So if I complete that phrase, I would say this would be my son's neighbor. I would love for them to say, so I'm so glad I live next door to your son. He's always respectful, willing to help. He's kind. He's super fun to talk to. And I can tell that he really cares about people. I can always count on him to be there for me if I need anything. I love that. Really cool adjectives. I love that you pulled out like responsibility and fun, right? It wasn't just like, he is a Nobel Peace Prize winner or, you know, he, <laughs> right? It's like you really captured his- He got person. straight A's in school. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So here's mine as from the perspective of an educator. I'm so glad that I live next door to your student. We'll call them Jake. They're always so interesting and compassionate and like, I, I guess this isn't really an adjective, but like that they're a very good listener and question asker. We need to invent adjectives that mean those things. I'll put that on my curious. Yeah, curious. But I, what I'm trying to get at is that like when they talk to this neighbor, maybe open-minded Maybe is that, maybe that's what I'm mm, Or inquisitive. For. Yeah, inquisitive. inquisitive. Like they're really interested in that other person's perspective, right? Mm. Okay, so if we keep going, I can tell that they really care about their community and our country and about the work that they do every day. And the reason that I put that in there is because I think that as an educator, one of my main roles is to help equip them to be a successful contributing member of society. And that's going to probably entail some sort of skill. And, and I want all of my students to have identified a skill, a way that they're going to participate in the world that is super meaningful to them. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, that they're going to fall in love with a problem in the world and that they're going to dedicate their lives to increasing their skill and in intellect and knowledge around that thing so that they can solve that problem in the world. Can you be my child's educator? <laughs> <laughs> I love that so much. Oh, this reflective time is so good. So I hope that you took some time to fill that out. And then we're going to move on to another exercise. So Here's the next one. So think of a person in your life. This could be a teacher, a family member, an author, someone from history that has been the most positive or influential person in your life. Okay, you got that person in mind. This is the person who put you on the path towards where you are now as an adult. Mm, that's a good question. Who? Okay, so I have a few. Yeah, I have a few <laughs> that I can think of like immediately. 
And then we're going to ask, how did this person make you feel? And what did they do for you? So that feeling that as soon as I ask that question, you're going to have this feeling attached to that. So name of what that feeling is. You can even like hop over to another tab on your phone and look up a feelings wheel or something to, to find a very specific feeling that comes to mind. And then you're going to try to focus so much on that feeling that you can actually feel it in your body. So connect where that feeling is. It could be in your chest, your arms, your hands, your face, your legs. I love this invitation so much because it's, it's incredibly important that we stop to feel our feelings. And it's, there's a few different reasons for this, but imagine you get like a cut on your finger and you're feeling pain, right? That's information from your nervous system going to your brain that there's a problem. And what your brain wants is for you to take care of that finger. It wants a bandaid. It wants you to know that there's something wrong down here. And if you just ignore it, then it will get worse. Your body will turn up that pain, the, the pain signal until you pay attention to it. And our feelings are the same way. And when we don't stop to feel our feelings and bring attention to them, it's kind of like we're telling our brain, I know this feeling is, it's like we're ignoring the information that we could be receiving fully. And then when we feel it in our body, that's a way that we can let our brain know that we've really internalized that there was some information there for us. And I know too, they've shown like functional MRIs where different parts of the brain literally light up when you're moving your body. So there's such a brain body connection. That's really important versus just saying, Oh, I'm feeling this way, but to really feel in your body where that is super important. Absolutely. Okay. So do you have a person in mind, Katie? Yeah, I totally do. Mine's an author. Um, he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. His name is Viktor Frankl, and he was a Holocaust survivor. And his, and he was also a psychologist. But in the book, he talks about how when he was in concentration camps, he really figured out how to hold on to hope and how to choose his attitude and his response regardless of his situation. And I just remember reading this as like a 20 something year old. And it was such a different message than I was getting anywhere else. And it gave me this feeling of like profound responsibility and ownership for my own brain and my own feelings and my own thoughts and my own actions. And so I guess I would label that as like determined. I just felt this determination to be super responsible for my own perspective on my life. And when I feel that determination again, I really feel it in my chest. And it's a very motivating, kind of exciting feeling like there's a lot of energy behind it. That's incredible. So I kept thinking of a few people and I feel like it was during like my middle school age is pretty pivotal time in my life. And it's really a family. My best friend, her name happened to be the same name that I have. And we even spelled our names the same way. And we were Adrian squared <laughs> and her whole family just took us in. And her sister was really impactful and influential because I wanted to be like her. She was just cool and creative and popular and just made me feel really special. And her parents just had this 
incredible ability to help me feel included and part of their family, even though I wasn't born and raised in their family. So when I think of the feeling attached to that, I'm trying to think respected probably Mm. and thankful, extremely thankful that they allowed me into their home and into their family and a lot of their family values, I see that I carry them on as an adult today. Okay, so now we're going to take out the camera of our mind and take a picture of that feeling. And then we're going to come back to that feeling later. So now we're going to imagine someone in our life who has made you feel judged or criticized, mm. not good enough. Anytime they walk into the room, you kind of, or like you get a text from them, you kind of get a pit in your stomach. It's not a good feeling. Okay. And Adrian and I will just keep our people in our heads. We don't need to publicly identify who they are or anything, <laughs> but you can imagine someone um, past or present and hold on to that. Kind of do the same thing. Bring some awareness to your body Really think about how this person affects you. Take a picture with your mind camera (laughs) of that feeling. You can label it. Okay. Put that on the shelf. And now we're going to juxtapose that by imagining that you're now at a party where you feel relaxed and calm. You're with all your favorite people. You're eating all your favorite food. You're laughing. You're bringing up funny memories you love what you're wearing, you feel really confident and happy. And then suddenly the judgmental person that you just imagined a minute ago shows up to this party. And I want you to feel the shift between the relaxed kind of comfortable feeling and then just the presence of that person evoking that pit in your stomach kind of feeling. And it's interesting, if you can really do that in your mind, how the the environment, you're still at the party, you're still with your friends, there's still all of those good things. Mm -hmm. That one relationship being in that picture now really takes over how you're feeling in your body. And it it just shifts you into a different state. So Adrian, what's happening here when we go from this calm to this kind of more alerted or agitated, nervous state? Well, it shows how important it is for us to connect our feelings to our bodies, right? Because especially if you're really visualizing this and you could physically feel this shift in your body, that's good. That means you have aware, you have this mind-body connection, which is what we want to get to. So what's basically happening is we have this beautiful thing called a nervous system, and it runs all throughout our body. We have this vagus nerve that looks like a tree. It runs from our brainstem all the way down to our extremities, to our heart, to all of the different organs in our body. And we have different pathways, I guess you can call them. So we have a sympathetic nervous system and a parasympathetic nervous system. So our sympathetic is mobilize. That is the activate. That's what if you feel this shift in your body and feel anxious or angry or more intense feeling, you're probably shifting into the sympathetic. And we also have this parasympathetic. So that's the rest and digest system. 
So we're in the social engagement system. We're feeling good in our bodies. And then that person walks in and we shift. We shift into that sympathetic or we could shift into that freeze mode. But that is basically our stress response. And that is our brain telling us, trying to keep us safe. And it's telling us, okay, we're in danger. And even though you may not even be in danger, that person may not even come over to you, may not talk to you, may not Mm -hmm. do anything, but your brain is telling you that you are in danger. That's really interesting. And that's what our brains are designed to do, right? They're designed to protect us. They developed based on our need for survival, right? So if we, if we, encounter anything that is alarming to us, it's going to put us on the defensive, right? And something that I think is not well known is that like everyone's heard of fight or flight mode. And usually the experiences or the examples that are used when we're talking about fight or flight is like, if there's a mountain lion in the room or something really terrible happens to you. you Right, right, right. It's like this big thing, but actually they've shown that this stress response is activated like a lot by pretty subtle things. Like you can, you can activate the stress response by just something being new or novel. If something's unpredictable, if you feel like you don't have control over something, or if your social competence is being called into question, or you feel judged or like a relationship might be disconnected or someone might be mad at you, right? All of those things. It's not a saber tooth lion. It's not like child abuse. It's not this extreme thing. But it is still triggering the same stress response, which does a variety of things in our brains, which we're going to talk about more later. We're not going to go into all the details now, but stay tuned for more information on that. Yeah. And I did mention the word trauma. So I wanted to define that a little bit. So trauma really is just neurological stress. It is stress to the brain and the cortisol is produced and it inhibits your brain's ability to be able to regulate and access higher levels of brain development. So basically it's decreasing the internal safety. And so if you're constantly in this state of fight or flight, or say that you're a parent and you have a toddler that has lots of tantrums, or you have a school age child that you're homeschooling and they're not doing what you want, then and you constantly are in this fight or flight or these power struggles with the child, you're getting stuck in that sympathetic nervous system and which can cause trauma to the brain. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So we need to just be more and more aware of our own kind of internal states if we're going to become a very effective role model or mentor or example, a support really to young people who don't have fully developed neurological systems and prefrontal cortex is prefrontal cortex I? I don't know. I'm not sure. (laughs) I don't know. But I like the prefrontal cortex (laughs) I. So funny. Um, Okay. So that was like a lot of like brain stuff. We're going to dig into that. That was just kind of like a preview of all of this good learning we're going to dig into, but just the main take home is you have two systems, a parasympathetic, which calms you down and a sympathetic nervous system that activates you. And it doesn't take much to activate that stress response, causing chemical changes in the brain that are really hard to work through. Um, And what's incredible is all we need to have the first stepping stone to help us with this regulation process and help our kids with this regulation process is self-awareness, which is what you're doing right now. Just learning about these things. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So we're ready for our last reflective practice. 
Can't um, wait. <laughs> okay, so think about a time in your life when you loved learning or a time that you felt like a really effective learner or really satisfied with your learning. So totally focus this next few minutes on learning, education. It might not be in a formal setting. It might just be something informal, something that happened outside of school that was really effective. So find that memory in your mind. And then you're going to ask yourself a few questions. What were the conditions that allowed that to happen? Mm. Okay. Adrian, do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah. So I always loved learning and I loved school. I was definitely a people pleaser, teacher's pets, not to put labels on myself. Uh, but I really, really got a lot of attention and love and connection. And that is what I think is the big piece of why was it so effective and why was I so satisfied? Because I had these really incredible relationships, not only with my teachers, but also with my peers. That's awesome. So you felt like that that was a really healthy environment for you. Yes. What about you? Do you have something in mind? Yeah. So I have in your life where you love learning. <laughs> um, so I am not an artist by any means. Like my art skills like were capped in like the third grade, I think. I don't think you could tell much of a difference. I mean, that's a very fixed mindset thing to say. I'll maybe I'll I'll reframe that to say. I have not chosen to focus on developing my art skills since about third grade. <laughs> um, I used to say the same thing. I used to say that my art skills stopped at fifth grade. So that's so yeah. funny you said that. But yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. So, I, so it's funny that like this experience was in an art class and I had this teacher who was just, when he walked into the room, like you could just tell that he thought well of every single one of those kids in his class. Like, Everyone was his favorite person. He was so kind. And you could just tell that he trusted everyone to be on, just to do their best, right? And to be on their best behavior. He gave us a ton of autonomy. Do you want to sit on that desk? Yeah, I'm going to sit on the desk. Okay, here, you know, if you're like handling yourself well, if you're showing me that you can handle that level of autonomy, like why not? You know, maybe it came kind of with the the territory of being an art teacher, being really comfortable with creativity and, you know, having more than one right way to be. Um, but I just felt like his confidence in everyone made it. So I felt confident in myself and in art, I did not feel confident in myself at all. So having that, um, as a support, as a mentor, like really helped me Instead of like in, in a normal art class without that, I would have just been like, oh, I'm not even going to try. I can't even put pencil to paper, you know, but he always saw the good in what I was doing, even though clearly it probably was not very good. Um, <laughs> he was so encouraging and that, um, that just really helped me have a good experience in that class. And I was able to kind of take that into other, um, other areas of my life. Yeah, that reminds me. What is that book about the dot? <laughs> the you start yeah. with the dot and then you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's That's that book called? One. I think it's called the dot. Like you draw a dot and then it is kind it? of like expands. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of that though. Like how you can start out because you said even though my work wasn't great, but to him it was because that's what art is, right? Right. I mean, that's super powerful. 
Yeah. And I think there's something to be said for, I mean, part of this question is what were the conditions that led to that being possible? I think that being in an art class where there weren't really strict um, like regulations or standards that had to be like, it wasn't like math or reading. There was no standardized test for art, like because of the environment around art allowed him to say, yes, that's great. And not sit there and say, actually, your line needs to be like this in order to hit the standard, right? Because there was that flexibility. And so I think um, that's part of what enabled that learning experience to be so healthy for me. And I don't know if this is for you, but I'm brought back to our classes and we didn't even have like desks. I mean, we did have chairs, but it's big tables and natural light and just the environment of the art room was very different than the traditional classroom as well. I know that's not for everyone, but for me, I was like, oh yeah, I definitely have some incredible learning experiences in art class because of the physical environment as well. So if you're listening to this, your example and the conditions that enabled your learning are going to be totally different. And the goal here is just to kind of collect these conditions so that we can, when we move forward to choosing a school for our child or creating a homeschool plan or organizing a culture in a classroom where we can kind of have these conditions at the ready. So whatever we create, we can check against these conditions that we know to be effective. Okay. So we've spent some good time reflecting on these buckets of feelings and thoughts and memories. And so I'm going to just kind of sum that up for us. So right now we should have a picture of the kind of person we want the young people in our lives to become. We should have a picture of who you want to be and who you don't want to be, right? You want to be a person that helps encourage kids to stay in their parasympathetic nervous system and not cause that stress response. And we're going to talk about that so much more later, Um, but that's just something we kind of touched on today. And then the conditions which supported you in your most successful learning experience. So the reason that we did all of this, again, is to help us reset our sights, our goal. It's so easy to think my role as a parent is to make sure that my kids get into college or that they bring home straight A's or that they, you know, become a classical music aficionado or a pianist or something like that. We get really focused on our role as kind of an enforcer, right? And we do that out of love. We do that out of good intention because we want our kids to be successful, but without kind of stepping back and really evaluating what successful looks like, we're going to end up making some decisions here in the short term that might not actually support that end goal. So you heard Adrian and I kind of joking about how the neighbor is not going to say that they always got straight A's, right? Or I really like that your son went to Yale or anything like that. Um, They're really going to be focused on who that person is. So just even going back to the story about my son, when I am getting so worried about his fourth grade math performance, and I'm feeling this, I'm definitely in my sympathetic nervous system, right? I'm agitated. My chest is tight. I'm feeling very concerned that I can think, wait, I have this vision and I have this picture of what success looks like. And it does not actually require him as a 10-year-old to have all of his math facts memorized now, right? If that happened in six months or in a year, like we haven't let go of that future vision, right? That that future vision is not in danger. 
And that helps me as a parent calm my nervous system down and to be able to interact with him in a way that close, more closely approximates the way that my art teacher interacted with me, right? With a, a deep sense of confidence and encouragement instead of scarcity or fear, right? He didn't, my art teacher was never saying, oh, you know, I'm really worried you're not going to get this shading, te- the shading technique down by third quarter. And we've really got to make sure you have that skill or else you'll never develop it in your life. And I'm very concerned, right? That would, that would feel weird if an art teacher came to you and said that, but that's essentially what we're doing to a lot of kids. We're really worried that you don't have this skill because we really need you to do X, Y, and Z in the future. And we feel like if you don't hit this now that that's at risk. And that puts us into this cycle, this nervous system cycle where we're stressed, our stress response is activated that activates the child's stress response. And we just kind of go around and round in these yucky circles that disconnect us and don't make it possible for us to provide the learning conditions that we've identified as beneficial. So all of these things, all of these little pictures that we've identified kind of collapse in on each other in, in this, in, into like this big environment really that's full of requirements like what are the requirements for learning what are the methods for learning what are the expectations what is the relationship that i'm bringing into this environment and if we think about all those things intentionally the likelihood that we'll be able to create empowering learning environments and i'm going to include relationships in that word environment goes way high right it gets way better if we're coming at this from a powerful encouraging way. So it's basically to help the young people in our life become who we described, you know, in question number one. And so we need to stop and go, okay, how do we do this? Most likely we need to create the same conditions, environment, and culture that helped us become who we are like in question two or who we want to be. And that means that you need to become the kind of person that inspired you or changed your life trajectory because you can do that for the children in your life. Totally. And something that's important to note here is that if you, if, if, this, if these exercises were really hard for you, if you don't have a person, right, if you didn't have a, a successful, motivating, encouraging learning experience anywhere, think about what you would have wanted, What did you want the adults in your life to be for you? What kind of a learning experience would have helped you? And you can just create that in the theoretical. That's That's really good. You can use that as a guide. Definitely. So what do you think? I mean, we've kind of touched on this, but Adrian, what do you think is really getting in our way? What's stopping us from creating these relationships and environments? I don't think it's just one thing. Obviously, it's going to be different for each unique person. But honestly, I really think it's ignorance, not being aware of these types of things or being aware that we're treating kids in these ways that we wouldn't want to be treated. Uh, Fear, comparison to others. I mean, you know, social media is the best place to go (laughs) whenever you want to feel good about yourself. Uh, Having unrealistic expectations. There's this expectation gap of not realizing that kids are not little adults and they don't have little adult brains, but they are growing and learning as they become older and societal norms, I think is a really big part of that too, is just culturally. Cause if you go into some of these other cultures 
And I recently read a book about hunting and gathering cultures. It's incredible because a lot of these things that we were talking about and we want to get to, they're just baked into their cultures already. Um, And so somewhere along the lines, I don't know if it's industrialism or what, or what, somewhere along the lines in our society, we've kind of gotten away from these environments and relationships that really help children's brains grow in a psychologically and emotionally healthy way. Yes. Okay. I cannot agree with more with that. There's, there's so many things baked into our culture, these expectations that like fly in the face of allowing us to really step into this new role of being an inspiring, caring relationship. Because like, if you think about a teacher, teachers have curriculum schedules and they have to do grades and there are standards and they have to stick to all this stuff, which makes it almost impossible to step in, unless you're an art teacher, maybe, <laughs> um, yeah. to step in and really be this. It, it, it seems like becoming this person has, it requires a little bit of flexibility, right? Because if you are not fitting into the box, what you need is someone to say, and that's okay. And here's how we can move you forward. And that path might look different, but that's really hard to do within our traditional education system currently. And then I think about this from the parental standpoint. And again, like parents are very focused on, you have to be kind of, or you feel like you have to be, there's this pressure to feel like you have to make sure your kids are getting good grades and that they're getting into college and that you're keeping them safe physically. And that makes it hard to be a person who is able to give more autonomy and to design help to help um, learners develop more than one path. It's like it's just the definition of the hat that we all wear is not actually getting us to the goal that I think most of us just defined in those exercises. Yeah, and it really boils down to this need to have control too, and not realizing where that's coming from, and that's coming from a state of internal unsafety or not feeling safe in your brain. Okay, so Adrian, what are some helpful frameworks that we can give to listeners to help make the shift between like this more control-based role towards a more support mentorship relationship-driven role? Yeah, there's some really great analogies that hone in on this so that you can really understand what we're talking about here. So the first one is a gardener versus the carpenter. So think of a carpenter. The carpenter has all of its tools and supplies, and they're trying to frame this house to look a very specific way. Mm -hmm. And so a carpenter parent thinks that a child can be molded, right? And then we have the gardener. The gardener plants the seeds and and what gives the soil nutrients and waters the seeds and really just helps them grow to whatever that flower is going to look like or that vegetable or whatever you're growing. So the gardener is less concerned about who the child will become and instead provides a protected space to really explore within boundaries. Because I think sometimes when people hear about this role as a parent, oh, do I just let my child do whatever they want or giving them autonomy? No, there's still boundaries in place. There's still a framework. One of my favorite analogies is kind of going off a little bit, but is think of a puzzle. When you start a puzzle, you usually start with the edges, right? And do all the flat sides. And then inside, sometimes you'll put all the pieces around and just start like putting the pieces together. So it's the same kind of concept is we want to put that border around, but then the children 
the kids in our lives get to move those pieces around um, inside and and make their own choices and their decisions of what their path is going to look like. Yes. To add to that, if you think about a different kind of seed, um, some like the gardener doesn't get to decide what the plant grows, right? You plant a tomato seed, that's going to become a tomato. If you plant an orange tree, it's going to become an orange. The amazing work that happens that to take that seed from seed to fruit, the gardener's really just providing that environment. But depending on what the seed is, it might need more support, right? If you think about a pea seed that needs to grow on a lattice to be successful, the gardener's going to provide that lattice, that structure in order for that seed, that specific seed to be able to flourish. Does that mean that every seed in the garden needs a lattice? No, right? It depends on that individual, what they need. And so the gardener's there to really hone in on what that individual seed needs. And when you think of the carpenter, it's like the carpenter is deciding what the thing is going to become. It's a, it's a house, it's a table, it's a chair. The wood that they're carving something out of doesn't have any choices. There's no life in it, right? So I love this analogy because there's there is life in our kids. There's life in our students. They have a unique individual passions that are going to drive them throughout their life. And it's really on us to create that environment for them to grow into that rather than to define it for them. Yes. So can you think of any other frameworks? Yes. Okay. So this is one of my favorite ones. Um, Think of yourself going from being like a train conductor, keeping everybody on track and making sure we're hitting all of this, the right schedules to being a tour guide right? If you're a tour guide, you have a client and they are wanting to go a specific place and your job is to help them get there. And that might look different for every one of your clients, right? You're not going to put them all on a train. You're not going to put them all on an airplane. Some of them are going to take boats. Some of them them are going to walk. Some of them you're going to be renting mopeds for them, right? The way to get there and the way they want to experience that learning is there's a high degree of variability and your job is not to make everyone the same. Your job is to help everyone get where they need to go. Yeah, totally. It's just kind of like the consultant versus the manager too. I really like that one. Oh yeah. Talk about, I that one read about that one. Yeah. So, you know, the manager is responsible for controlling the activities, dealings and all that they're doing for that other person, but consultant provides expert advice and guidance So yes, we're still there to support our child, but we're also helping them increase their stress tolerance by Mm -hmm. giving them the space to be able, going back to the gardening, like to bloom and to be able to be who they want to be and who they are created to be. And it really helps us help them access their full potential. That's what all of this is about. Right. Absolutely. So speaking of the consultant role, That idea comes from a book called The Self-Driven Child, and spoiler alert, we will be interviewing the authors of The Self-Driven Child in a coming episode. So exciting. We're really excited to learn from them. That book is like my favorite. Yes, super excited to have them on, and they actually play a pretty big role in how and why my kids are educated the way they are now, so... Okay, so we're going to wrap up today. We covered so much and went really deep. I would encourage you to go back, re-listen to the prompts, write them down if you didn't have a chance to. We're stepping back and just looking at our role in our children's lives. 
Now it's time for our question segment. So we had a listener write in this question. This is from Becky. It seems like it takes my daughter forever to do a day's assignment. She takes many brain breaks. How can I motivate her to go along and get it done? Yes, I love this question. It's like so many of us are in such a similar situation. And so I think that no matter where you are, you're going to be able to learn from Becky's question here. So the first thing I do whenever I'm in a situation like this is just like we practice today, I'm going to turn inward and really focus on how I'm feeling in my body, right? So if I, if this situation, and Becky, it's tricky because you're not here. If you were here, we'd really dig into how you're feeling, like your authentic feeling. So we have to kind of invent how you might be feeling. Um, so we might be wrong, but if I was in this situation or, or something similar, I would probably feel a little frustrated, a little impatient. I could feel myself getting like a little just to the end of my rope, I'll say. Um, and so I can feel that in my body. And in this moment when I'm sitting there and I can see that she's taking more brain breaks or she's not getting something done. And I feel like I just wish this could, you know, we could just get this over with. I'm going to just stop and feel that in my body. And I'm actually, I like to do something um, where I thank my nervous system for helping protect me. So if I'm feeling frustrated or impatient, I'm going to focus on that feeling. I'm going to find it in my body. I'm going to take some deep breaths and I'm going to say, thanks for helping me stay safe. Thanks, frustration. Thanks, impatience. I see that you're trying to protect me. And just doing that is going to help me get out of my sympathetic nervous system back into a calm state where I can interact with my child in a way that's not going to trigger their stress response. So it always starts with you. What would you do next, Adrian? Yes. Yeah. So what I would do next, so find that calm in your body. And if you can't, maybe don't do it right away. Just take a little time, give yourself the time. And a really great way to find calm in your body too, is to move it. As we were saying, movement really sparks and lights up different parts of the brain. And then we can access our frontal lobe and really start asking these reflective questions and ask yourself, how am I seeing my child? What am I believing about my child in this moment? Because your interpretation of events basically cause your feelings. And so another example, if I like apply this to my child. I do him educate him. We use private teachers, but sometimes I get to be the teacher, get to be the winner. And same thing happens. He'll just walk away, just walk right away from the table. So I start to feel it in my body. Okay. This is feeling anxious. Why am I anxious? Because I'm working and I only have so much time and I can't sit here all day long while he takes all these brain breaks. And I start to realize all these thoughts and things that I have. And I start believing these things about him. Oh, he is, I try not to apply labels, but I'm sure somewhere deep in my subconscious. <laughs> if you're not managing this, you're definitely going to be like, oh, you're disrespectful. Like, I can't believe you did that. Or I can't believe, you know, there's going to be a lot of labeling that comes up that may or may not be true and may or may not be helpful. Right. Like manipulative or whatever these other mindsets about my child that have probably been developed from childhood or other situations in my life that I start feeling uh, and believing about him. So I just stop and go, okay, what am I believing about him in this moment? 
And then you want to get to a place where you just feel neutral. So I then will, if I cannot get myself to calm down, I will take deep breaths. I'll go over to the sink. I'll try to trigger that vagus nerve, you know, get into that sympathetic. I'll put cold water on my hands or I will involve him as well. We'll grab a ball and we'll just throw it at each other. I take the brain breaks with him Mm -hmm. and then we can co-regulate our nervous systems together. And sometimes that's all it takes to get him back to the table. So just having these, this awareness and thoughts, being aware of what I'm thinking about and believing about him in that situation helps me regulate so much. I love that. And just to add quickly, um, when kids are in this kind of distracted state, one of the main functions of your prefrontal cortex, which is the front part of your brain here, the part your thinking brain, the part that the part of your brain that actually enables you to pay attention and to stay goal directed, that it's become disconnected. And so perhaps something in the course of your day has caused that a little bit of disconnection. And so taking that brain break with your child and really focusing on connection can actually help reconnect their brain to the prefrontal cortex. It's going to help them stay engaged and focused. And sometimes when our kids are avoiding things, it's they're really looking for connection. And maybe there's something that she's getting out. Maybe she's getting a little connection from you when you are redirecting her and trying to help her stay focused. And so if instead we just took that brain break and dove really deep into the connection, the brain's need for that would be satiated and we could prolong that focus a lot more. Yeah. And I definitely see that. And also because my child is gifted and neurodivergent. He has asynchronous development in the brain. So there's parts of his brain that are way more developed than other kids his age. And then there's parts of his brain that are underdeveloped. So executive function is one of those. So just being mindful of your individual child's unique development, not just based on what other kids her age could be or should be doing at that time. Right. We get into those, like, you should be able to traps when clearly like the behavior is demonstrating the development. So if she's needing all this, all of these brain breaks, that's not necessarily a problem. She's just showing you where she's at developmentally. And the right thing to do there is to, instead of kind of sitting in judgment or saying like, this is a problem, um, we can just accept that, that that's where we're at on the journey and that that's the... And that's really hard to do. <laughs> it's really hard to get to the acceptance. Yes, it's totally... And you might even be feeling as we're saying that, like just as Katie was saying that, I was thinking, but what if I don't want to accept? But this is part of a journey, you know, it, right. it takes a while to get to that point. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so the next thing, so we've done, how am I doing inside with my nervous system. And then the second thing we're going to look at is how, um, how you're seeing your child. That's the second step. And then the third question you're going to ask yourself is what is my child needing? Right? So going back to our analogies, our gardening analogies, if you are a gardener and you walk by a plant and you see that its leaves are yellowed or like crunchy, you're not going to get mad at the plant, right? You don't label the plant as lazy or making your life difficult or anything like that. We just don't do that with plants, right? But we do do that with our kids, interestingly enough. So um, realizing that all behavior and all, all behavior is information. 
So get curious about why she needs these brain breaks and trying to figure out what is the root cause of that behavior? What is being communicated? That's kind of the third step to this process. Anything to add there, Adrienne? An analogy that I use in my parent coaching is root to bloom. So think about those roots beneath the surface and what are they needing in order for the flower to be able to bloom. So figuring out what's happening beneath the surface. I was just talking to a mom this morning though, and she's very insightful, knows that she wants to figure out what's happening beneath the surface. She's not just trying to stop the behaviors, but she's just like, I can't figure out what is happening. So maybe just trying to have some conversations whenever the child is calm and has that social engagement system that we talked about that's online and just, you know, asking questions Maybe you can do it through play, you can do it with stuffed animals, uh, role playing, and just really try to get to the root cause of those behaviors. So then you can water that soil and give the soil the nutrients that it needs in order to bloom. I love that. Okay. So the fourth step in this process is something we call collaborative problem solving. So it would be easy to kind of draw a lot of conclusions based on what we're seeing, but we really want to engage the child in solving this problem. So this framework comes from a book called Raising Human Beings. It's by Ross Green. Highly recommend it. If I were going to, if I get to my calm, neutral state and I'm, I'm seeing my child with curiosity and I've like kind of worked through those labels and I've done some time thinking about what the root cause might be. You know, I have some ideas, but now we're going to go check that. Those are kind of hypotheses and we're going to go check those now with the child. So I would say something like, Hey child, I noticed that that's like your intro phrase. It's not judgmental. It's curious and it's very neutral. So I noticed that when we're working, you're taking a lot of brain breaks and it's taking us a long time to get through our work. What's going on for you is your next question. So I noticed that. Describe what you're seeing in a non-judgmental way. And then what's going on for you, right? Invite them to tell you, oh, I need those brain breaks because I just feel, you know, they're going to give you all of this information about what's going on with them. And if they're little, if they're really little, you can give them some ideas and they can pick one, essentially. Um, you like turn it into a multiple choice <laughs> instead of this. Yes. And what we do sometimes is... yeah. We'll grab the whiteboard and just pull that out and they'll throw out ideas and I just jot them down on the whiteboard. And if it is a younger child, you could always do pictures or something like that so they can still feel in control of those choices and options. That's awesome. So after they've kind of expressed their needs, you're going to share your own needs. Like, oh, that is, thank you for sharing that with me. That's really helpful for me to know. Here's the thing. I only have, like going back to Adrian's example, I only have this hour to be with you because I have these other things to do or whatever your, whatever your need is. Why is it that you can't take all day to do the work? Or it could be something super positive. Like I want to go play. And I, so I would like to get the work done. Like how can we make a plan together to get both of our needs met, right? They have these needs that they've just described. You have a valid adult need or kind of a constraint or um, something that needs to happen. And both of these things are very valid. Everybody has needs and everyone's needs are valid and important. And when we come at situations um, in a, a more judgmental way, what we're essentially saying is my adult need trumps your kid need. And that does, that's not empowering to the child. It's almost like it's disrespectful, honestly. Like you would never do that to like your best friend, right? You would always want both sides of the, the 
conversation or like both people's perspectives on the table. So we try to do that with kids, even if they're little, it's just the most respectful thing you can do, which is really hard because as an adult, it's really easy to do that. You do control the schedule, you control all the things. And there are lots of things that we can do to motivate or control or um, like subtly manipulate kids to doing what we want because we're bigger than them and yeah. we control everything, right? And it's just, it's so... so we may have been manipulated in this way as a child. Yes. So, but how powerful to the child to know like, wow, my, my parent or my teacher is really interested in what's going on for me and they want to listen to me and they want to understand me, right? And then I'm going to be a powerful part of this plan to solve this problem in our community or in our family. And that's super empowering for them. So you make a plan and then as part of that plan, you're going to make a plan to check in on the plan. It's like a meta plan. It's like, okay, this is our plan. And how will we know if it's working, right? Well, we're going to have this little conversation in a week to see if it's going well. And if it's not going well, you can make a new plan. And it's just kind of this continuous collaborative problem solving process that is, is respectful and engaging and empowering to everyone. Yes. And both of your needs are met. That is really empowering and then that we can stay out of that sympathetic nervous system that we keep talking about. Another really practical tip or tool is tap into play. That's always my tool that I pull out of my toolbox is play. And depending on the age, I mean, just recently I couldn't get my six-year-old into the bath. And so I started speaking in this scientist voice and (laughs) really tapping into this playful character and and saying funny things and things that mom wouldn't normally say. Mm -hmm. And my 13-year-old, 13, he even was so excited and he was kind of like (laughs) getting into it too. So play really can work for all ages, especially if it becomes a norm in your your family. So if she's starting to get to the point where she doesn't want to do the work anymore, or maybe your brain's just getting tired because our brains can get tired every like 18 to 20 some minutes that we really should be taking breaks. It's just our culture. That's not something that we typically do. And especially in the American culture is take these breaks and give our, and listen to our brains and our bodies. So we can tap into play. Even when you're doing the lessons that can make it more fun and really help strengthen that connection and that bond that you have as well. I love it. Yep. Okay. Well, thanks for that question, Becky. We hope that we were helpful. That's it for today. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. In the next episode, we'll be talking with Bill Sticks-Rudd and Ned Johnson, the authors of The Self-Driven Child, which is one of our absolutely favorite books. And it's foundational reading for anyone who's interacting with young people, in my opinion. Go grab a copy. Check it out. Yeah, it's so good. You can also check out the Kindled Resource Hub at prenda.com slash kindled, where we have an awesome blog post that goes through the highlights if you don't have time to read the whole book. Before we go, don't forget to subscribe to Kindled wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, rate us, or share your favorite episode on social media. And don't forget to tag us at prendalearn. For more Kindled content, like Katie just said, head over to prenda.com backslash Kindled. And don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter. Secondly, remember to submit questions or challenges you are having to us via email. Every episode, we'll pick a question to dive into and Katie and I will do our best to coach you through whatever you're struggling with. We'd also love to hear your stories about how you have been able to empower the young people you support. 
So be sure to send us your questions, your stories, and really anything else that you want to share with us to podcast at Prenda, that's with a P, R-E-N-D-A dot com. Thanks for listening. And remember to keep kindling.